Hi there, and welcome to Edit Your Darlings, a podcast that tries to take the sting out of editing by talking with darling authors about their experiences. I'm Ariel Anderson, and today I'm joined by Anna Dobbin. Anna's writing has appeared in the middle grade anthologies The Hero Next Door and Totally Middle School. When she isn't writing, she copy edits middle grade and young adult books, as well as fiction and nonfiction for adults, graphic novels, cookbooks, and more. She also offers conscious language editorial services to help authors and organizations improve the sensitivity and inclusivity of their writing. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. So to be honest, I didn't even know that middle grade anthologies were a thing, even though I studied children's lit in college and I hadn't heard of them until I started researching for this podcast last year. So let's start with what's the process for placing a piece in one of these anthologies and how much editing went into each of your stories? Yeah, well, every anthology is a little bit different, but a lot of young adult and middle grade anthologies I see are made up of stories by authors who are established. You know, maybe they have published novels or, or what have you. And often the editor or compiler of the anthology will approach authors and ask them to be involved. But also nowadays, I'm seeing a lot of anthologies that are, you know, they're mostly made up of stories by established authors, but they'll have one or two stories by previously unpublished authors. Mm -hmm. So the editors of these anthologies will sometimes hold a contest or an open call for submissions. And this is one way that an unpublished author can get their work placed in an anthology. And some anthologies are entirely made up of previously unpublished authors. So if you're someone who is unpublished and you're trying to get placed in an anthology, definitely uh, be on the lookout for opportunities like these. My process for getting involved with my two anthologies was a bit different. I actually co-wrote the short stories with Linda Sue Park, who Mm. is a Newbery Award-winning author who also happens to be my mom. Oh my gosh, that's the best. (laughs) Yeah, little fun fact about me. And, you know, being a very accomplished author, she gets offers to contribute to anthologies all the time. So with the first anthology that we published a story in together called Totally Middle School, the editor approached my mom and asked her if she wanted to contribute. And she initially was going to say no because she already had too much on her plate. Mm -hmm. But then my mom and I were talking and she said to me, you know, I could take on this anthology project if you helped me, if we wrote it together. So it was my mom's idea to kind of rope me in. And so the opportunity basically fell into my lap, which, you know, I knew was a great opportunity and a great privilege, really. As for how much editing went into the stories, the most editing that happened was actually just between my mom and me, which was really fun. Basically, for, for each of these stories, we came up with a concept and an outline for each story. And then we... Like we traded the manuscript back and forth. Like I would write a scene and then pass the manuscript to her and she would critique and edit the scene and then write the next scene. 
and mm. pass it back to me. So okay, then that's I, a fun writing game. I like playing yeah. that game at parties. <laughs> I don't know about having the pressure of like a deadline and to get it right and to make it good. Whew. Yeah, we were following an outline. So, you know, I don't know how, how much outlining would happen in a party game. But so basically, we would pass it back and forth and critique each other's scenes until we had the story written. Kind of as a result of that process, neither of the anthology editors had a lot of notes for us. Because when, like, when you co-write something with someone else, especially someone with so much experience like my mom has, mm -hmm. there's kind of this entire round of editing that happens before the piece even goes to the anthology editor. Because mm -hmm. you, have, you, know, you have two sets of eyes and you have two brains working on the manuscript before anyone else even sees it. That was really great. And the process was really smooth between us. I liked working with my mom because I felt like we could be really honest with each other. We both really cared about making the story the best that it could be. Mm -hmm. And so if something wasn't working, neither of us was afraid to be blunt and say, this isn't working. Right. Like because it was it was all about crafting the story and it wasn't like about our feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and you and, and we, your mother still get along. <laughs> we do. I you know, before <laughs> before we went into the first anthology together, I was kinda of, I was a little bit nervous about how we would work together, but it ended up going really, really well. You know, I think we both just would just come from this point of view where, you know, it's all about the story. And so, you know, we aren't afraid to be critical. This would be a lot more difficult if I were collaborating with a co-author I didn't know as well. Both you and I know how important it is to be, you know, tactful and kind when editing other people's work. And you know, not that my mom and I weren't kind to each other, but um, with us, there was like a certain directness that allowed us to really kind of be efficient in writing and editing these stories and allowed us to kind of get to the heart of things without worrying too much about hurting feelings. Were there any points that you argued about or had differences of opinions? There were like little things. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, we, we were able to work through them. You know, the reason I love, I enjoyed working with my mom so much is that we, we both have a real passion for like line editing and precision and word choice we're on the same wavelength in terms of like obsessing over the tiniest details. <laughs> like one example that pops into my head is our story, Totally Middle School, is called Dog People. And it has a lot of dogs in it. And I remember my mom and me like texting back and forth about what the best verb was to describe the way a Pomeranian walks. They kind of hop a little bit. Yeah, so we're, we're texting, like, does a Pomeranian flounce? Does it sachet? Does it prance? So just texting back and forth for 10 minutes about the way a certain dog breed walks is an example of, like, the kind of weeds we get into and, like, the kind of editorial decisions that we love making together. Do you remember which one won out? I think it was flounce. <laughs> I think of like a standard size poodle kind of flouncing, flaunting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Just all of those, uh, all of those uh, small word choice decisions. That's, that's the kind of editing that we love to do. So I think that's one of the reasons that we got along so well in this process. Mm -hmm. And so that love also carries over to your day job. And I usually try to keep the show focused on sort of the writer's perspective. 
but I can't resist the opportunity because it's not every day that I get to chat with a freelance copy editor who used to work in-house. So let's talk a bit about your experiences in freelance editing versus in-house editing. So you're a copy editor. Do you do line editing as well? I mainly do copy editing, which honestly sometimes involves a certain amount of line editing. But mm-hmm. that's kind of like the the title that I think of myself as, as freelance copy editor. Yeah. And so why did you switch from in-house to freelancing? Which one did you prefer or feel more empowered in? I feel more empowered now as a freelancer, for sure. I've been freelancing for about six years now. And oh, wow. I think a big part of that empowered feeling is just that I feel so much more confident in my abilities as an editor than when I was younger. Mm. Um, so that's a big part of it. And, you know, I also prefer it because I love being my own boss. I love being able to work when I want to work and take time off when I want to. One maybe disadvantage of being a freelance editor versus an in house editor is that. I no longer have influence in the decisions of which books get published, mm, you know, mm-hmm. at, at traditional publishing houses. So uh, most of my freelance work actually comes from publishers. I mostly work with publishers rather than directly with authors. And I have some freedom in choosing which books I want to work on, but I don't have any control over which books get published, which mm-hmm. I would have if I'd stayed on the editorial track in-house. But, you know, even with that said, I still prefer what I do now. And I think one of the things that people may not realize if they're not familiar with how things work at traditional publishing houses is that in-house editors have so much on their plates that have nothing to do with editing. Mm. So they have to Mm. like, they have to attend tons of meetings. They have to write catalog copy and flap copy and fill out pub cards They have to prepare presentations to pitch their acquisitions to the marketing and sales teams. They have to solicit blurbs and they have to do a bunch of other like random administrative tasks. Mm -hmm. And when I worked in-house at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, I saw this very clearly. I could see how much responsibility the editors had outside of their editorial work. And I just, I started to wonder if that was really what I wanted for my career. So now that I'm a freelance copy editor, I, you know, I may not have control over the books that get published, but I basically spend all my time editing. It's great. All I do is edit, which is, <laughs> which is like my favorite thing to do. And like mm-hmm. I occasionally will have other tasks like answering emails and like getting my stuff together during tax season or whatever. But mostly, you know, when I don't have a writing project going on, I spend all day, every day editing. And this yeah. is like, this is something that I never would have been able to do if I'd stayed in house. Yeah. But then as a writer, writers who work with in-house copy editors don't have to pay for that service. So why would a writer want to work with a freelancer versus an in-house editor? Well, I think the biggest reason a writer would prefer to work with a freelancer is if the writer wants to self-publish. Right. Um, you know, there are advantages to self-publishing and there are advantages to traditional publishing. And that's something that, you know, a writer kind of has to research and decide for themselves, which is best for them. And, you know, if a writer decides to go the self-publishing route, they have to realize that their book is going to be on the market with traditionally published books that have been professionally edited. 
Mm-hmm. So for their book to stand out among the crowd, it needs to be professionally edited too, right? You know, if you are self-publishing, getting your book edited by a professional is not somewhere that you want to cut corners. I have worked directly with authors on a handful of occasions, and these authors were all going the self-publishing route. Mm-hmm. So since most of your work comes from the publishing house, those authors don't get to say, oh, I want to work with Anna. Occasionally I will, you know, I'll work on a manuscript by an author and they will think I've done a good job and they'll ask for me for the next novel that they write. Mm-hmm. I have had that experience. I've also copy edited a couple of my mom's books. So Ooh. she she Ooh. um asked for me, which that's a flex. I mean, she she asked for me, which, you know, kind of sounds like nepotism, but uh, she also, you know, she would not suffer a fool who didn't know <laughs> her Chicago manual of style, like the back of her hand. So um, I did her two latest books. So that was really, really cool. And, you know, even though I'm not like interacting with authors directly, sometimes a managing editor at a publisher will send along a comment from an author that just totally makes my day. Ooh, ooh, we're into wind jars. Yeah. So I have a folder in my Gmail where I keep compliments from managing editors and from authors because it's just nice to have those things to look at, you know, when you need a boost. One author said she appreciated how thoughtful and thorough I was and that she felt like she was in good hands all the way through. Mm-hmm. And also I admit that sometimes after I turn in a copy editing job to a publisher, I'll snoop on the author's social media to see <laughs> just to see if they say anything about it. So a few times I've seen authors tweet nice things about my copy edits. So mm-hmm. I have a handful of those tweets in my wind jar as well. I love following authors who say nice things about copy editors. <laughs> I just... I love it. I'm not their copy editor and I'm just like, oh, they're so nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I feel like some authors like really appreciate what we do and some are kind of more skeptical. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I just want to say if anyone is like skeptical about copy editing, like copy editors are on your side. We want to help you make the book as good as it can be. So, yeah, it's definitely nice to see authors like tweet about copy editors that they appreciate because sometimes our work is not always appreciated. (laughs) And then some writers are editors and some editors are writers, but we're not all both. How has being an editor influenced your own writing practices and vice versa? Well, being an editor, I would say definitely makes me more open to feedback on my own writing. So, you know, one example of this is when someone reads my work and comments on a sentence or something, and they say something like, I don't understand what you mean here. And I think as writers, often our first instinct is to say, well, this, this makes sense to me. The way I've written this, to me, the meaning is clear, right? Mm-hmm. But my experience as an editor, I think has helped me resist that instinct. And instead I ask myself, like, okay, this sentence might make sense to me, but it, it isn't clear to this one reader, which means it might not be clear to other readers. Mm-hmm. So how can I make this better? So instead of you know, getting defensive about the way I phrase something, I, I push myself to make the writing clearer and more, more understandable. 
Yeah, I sometimes worry because I write that comment a whole lot. I don't understand what you're saying here. And mm-hmm. I worry that the authors are going to be like, this girl, <laughs> is no, she I mean, even trying? <laughs> I make that comment too as an editor. And, you know, I always like, I'm, I always like read the sentence many times to make sure I'm not missing something. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think that as a writer, I want to, I really want to hear those comments. Just because something makes sense in my head doesn't mean it's going to make sense to everybody. And I just always want to have the audience in mind, right? Yeah. And then, you know, in the other direction, being a writer makes me a more sensitive editor, I think, because I know how it feels to be critiqued and even to have my work rejected. Every time I work on someone else's manuscript, I will usually do like a first pass where I make, you know, all of my edits and comments. And then when I'm finished, I'll do a second pass where I look at my comments again, kind of as if I were the author. On this second pass, I'll often find ways to phrase criticism more tactfully and more clearly, just find ways to Mm -hmm. be more kind and gentle with what I'm saying. Even if you're someone with like a thick skin for criticism, it can still sting to hear it. I think for many authors, our writing is so personal and so close to our hearts, and it's, it's so tied up with who we are as people. So, you know, being a writer myself and knowing this and experiencing rejection and criticism, I just, I try to be kind and encouraging when I edit other people's work. Yeah. I have the hardest time with that when I'm doing line editing because that is an intentionally heavy edit, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like I'm changing a lot and I'm Mm -hmm. making big changes and it's Mm -hmm. like a whole transformation And I don't know how to say this needed to happen without without the implication that the way that it was before wasn't sufficient, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I come across something that I I really feel like a sentence that needs work, being a copy editor kind kind of allows me to just kind of put it in a comment rather than to outright change it, you know? So I will say possible rewrite or suggested rewrite. Like, what do you think of this? Oh, you're Um, so helpful. (laughs) I try to make those suggestions because once it gets to me as a copy editor, you know, you, you hope that it's been through line editing already with the -hmm. the in-house editor, but you know, sometimes things at that stage still need, still need pretty heavy editing. I do my best to try to walk that balance between saying, Hey, this could really be better and saying, is this change okay? Like, are you okay with this? So it's a balance. Yeah. And then you offer one other service that I'm really curious about. You say that you have a conscious language editorial service. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what is conscious language? Who needs that service? What does it look like? And how can we empower writers to really own it? Yeah. Well, conscious language is kind of an umbrella term for how to think about and use language in a way that is conscientious and inclusive. So there's a lot of bias baked into the English language, even words and phrases that might seem innocuous. And as an editor and a writer, I've become passionate about conscious language and helping other authors learn about it. When we kind of use this umbrella term, conscious language, I think this term partly comes from 
the fact that everybody has internalized biases, right? I have biases, authors have biases, editors have biases, everyone does. Mm -hmm. And so often our biases are unconscious and it takes conscious effort to notice them and to try to unlearn them. To me, conscious language involves taking a critical look at our writing and making sure that we're not using language that could potentially cause harm to a reader mm-hmm. or cause a reader to feel excluded or erased or perpetuate negative stereotypes of marginalized groups. Maybe it would be helpful to give a concrete example. Let's take the phrase, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. We hear this phrase all the time, right? We yeah, hear it. it's a very real, it's still in use. Absolutely. So and what's we, the harm? Well, we, okay, so we hear like announcers say this phrase at events. We hear flight attendants say it on airplanes. We hear it in all sorts of contexts, right? Like, ladies and gentlemen. And mm-hmm. this is an example of a phrase that might seem normal and inoffensive, until you consider the fact that not every person identifies as male or female. Mm-hmm. Not every person is a lady or a gentleman. Non-binary people and people of other genders outside the gender binary of male and female mm-hmm. are not reflected or included in the phrase ladies and gentlemen. So whenever I come across this phrase in my editing work, I ask the author to consider using language that is gender neutral instead. So for this one, I love the alternative esteemed guests or (laughs) distinguished guests, right? Completely gender neutral. You know, this can vary depending on the context. The word Mm -hmm. people often works. Sometimes the word folks works in a more casual context. I'm a big fan Um, of the word y'all. Y'all, I love y'all. Yeah, That's such uh, a absolutely. Good word. <laughs> so the point is that, like, if we can use a word or a phrase that includes people rather than excludes them, mm-hmm. why wouldn't we? Right? Why wouldn't we do that? I really want writers and editors to think about the fact that just because a phrase is common doesn't make it okay. You know, just because we're used to hearing something a certain way doesn't mean we have to continue saying it that way. Mm -hmm. As writers and editors, we have the power and I think the responsibility to help shape language to be more conscious and inclusive. And the last thing I'll say about this is that if any listeners want to learn more, I'd recommend Mm -hmm. checking out the Conscious Style Guide Mm -hmm. at uh, ConsciousStyleGuide.com. And this is just a fantastic website that has tons of resources if you want to explore this topic. Yeah. And you can follow Karen Yin on Twitter. And she was the one who started the Conscious Style Guide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So let's move on to the questions that I ask every author I talk to. Mm -hmm. What do you hate about the editing process? (laughs) This is a hard question. I'm such a nerd. I feel like I just love the editing process. (laughs) I guess for me, the hardest part of being edited, I think maybe is like the first time I read someone's editorial notes or Mm -hmm. the first time I see someone's edits on something I've written because there's always that like first twinge of like defensiveness. Like, Mm. no, you're wrong. My writing is great. How dare you suggest these changes? So there's like that instinct right away to get defensive. You 
professional editor who I paid a lot of money. You don't know what you're talking about. Right, exactly. So oh. I think like I think everybody to an extent feels that. Because again, you know, writing can be very personal and this is, you know, us pouring our hearts onto our page. So the defensiveness I think is natural. But then of course, you know, I take a breath, I step away from the edits and I come back and I look at them again and it doesn't feel as bad. What do you do while you're away? <laughs> what do I do? I don't know. Maybe I go for a walk. I walk my dog. Although I haven't been walking him lately because, okay, I live in Maryland and we have the cicada issue. Uh. <laughs> and my dog has discovered the cicadas and he tries to eat them and it's really gross. <laughs> I will walk away from my computer, go for a walk with my dog or without my dog. And when I come back to my computer, I just kind of get over myself and I make the changes and my work is always better for it. The very first time I read edits on my work, like I wouldn't say I hate it, but there can definitely be some like initial defensiveness and Mm -hmm. irritation that isn't very pleasant. Yeah. So what's the most common bit of feedback you receive on your writing? I talked earlier about how sometimes a reader or an editor will tell me, like, I don't get this. What do you mean here? And I think that you know, sometimes there will be an understanding or some kind of context or assumption just in my own brain that isn't coming across on the page. Generally speaking, that's probably what I see the most often, just feedback asking me to convey what I mean in a way that is more universal. Yeah. Do you feel like it's a matter of word choice or underwriting? For me, probably underwriting. As an editor, I feel like I have this mantra in my head that like less is more. I generally am more of a a spare writer rather than like a flowery writer. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I just have to tell myself, I just need to add a little bit more here. And then do you have any last words of advice? So for aspiring writers out there who may be listening, I would love to talk about National Novel Writing Month for a second. Um, I haven't really talked about this yet, but someday I'd really like to publish YA novels. Mm -hmm. I have these two middle grade short stories that I've published, but young adult fiction is really kind of my dream. I've written two complete manuscripts, neither of which are published, but I'm (laughs) I'm hopeful someday that they will be. And the way I got them written was during National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo for mm-hmm. short. And basically, for anyone who hasn't heard of this, NaNoWriMo is this movement every November where tens of thousands of people around the world attempt to write a novel in one month. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as far as giving advice, I can only say what has worked for me in the past. And for me, I found NaNoWriMo incredibly motivating. So if you're an aspiring writer, an aspiring novelist who is motivated by deadlines and by hitting goals like I am, check out NaNoWriMo and try it out. Yeah. A month is a a totally reasonable amount of time (laughs) to write a novel. How long could it take? Like a few weeks? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be clear, the draft that you'll have at the end is going to be a total mess. Mm -hmm. But the point is just getting the words on the page and then... Once that part is done, it's incredible how much easier it is to then work with it. Yeah. So I I love NaNoWriMo just because it it forces you to work toward this goal and to get the words on the page, even if the words are far from perfect. Yeah. A garbage draft is better than no draft at all. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
So the last portion of our program is a hot and wholesome gossip corner. (laughs) Are there any other writers or creators doing something you're excited about? Any shout outs you want to give or people you want to lift up? One of my favorite books I've read recently is Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nyeri. It won the Prince Medal this past year, and it's so deserving of that honor. I mean, I love this book so much, and I had the opportunity to work with Daniel for a few years when he was an editor at HMH, Mm -hmm. and he's just such a kind person and so, so innovative in the way that he thinks about books and storytelling and publishing. So if you haven't read Everything Sad is Untrue, definitely get on that. Another author I'll shout out is Makia Lucier, who has a book coming out in November that I copy edited called The Year of the Reaper. Why do I feel like I've heard of that one? So Makia Lucier has published, I think, three books before this one that I copy edited. The title of the book I worked on is The Year of the Reaper, and I believe it comes out in November. And it's this creepy, like, historical fantasy with ghosts and a mystery and a little bit of romance. And I just, I absolutely loved it. It was one of my favorite books that I worked on in the past year. Mm. So keep an eye out for The Year of the Reaper by Makia Lucier. And finally, I'll give, I'll give a shout out to Betsy Cornwell, who has written several awesome YA novels. I love Betsy's books because... They're, they're so layered and beautiful, and they often have feminist themes and queer characters. And I think Betsy's books empower readers to be themselves. Mm. Um, and I had the chance to work a little bit on Betsy's debut novel when I was at HMH, and it's just been such a, a joy to see their career take off. Right now, they're working on a really cool project where they're converting this old knitting factory into a childcare inclusive arts residency for single parents, which is just amazing. So definitely check out Betsy Cornwell's books and their old knitting factory project. Yeah. Well, if you want to check out Anna's work, you can follow her on Twitter as at AK Dobbin or pick up a copy or three or seven of the anthology The Hero Next Door as the proceeds go to help support We Need Diverse Books. Thank you again for talking with me, Anna. Thank you. This was really fun. If you loved this episode of Edit Your Darlings, why not share it with a friend? Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast fix. For show notes, go to edityourdarlings.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at editpodcast, or I'm at Ariel Copy Edits. Until next week, cheers! (laughs) 